This is the Spirit Truth Podcast, conversations to equip worship teams and songwriters. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Spirit Truth Podcast. Um, by now, you should know that my name is James, and I'll be your host. And uh, today is a very special podcast that I'm recording on the weekend of Convergence. It's our um, basically our annual conference for all the Shofar churches. And I've got a very special guest today, Dr. Corne Becker. Do I call you professor? Do I call you bishop? Uh, <laughs> you call me servant, yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's, All those titles are man-made stuff. <laughs> it is such a privilege to be speaking to you today. Um, uh, when I mentioned to a friend of mine, Greg, mm. that I get to do a podcast with you, I've got you for half an hour all to myself. He said, "Just James, just say, Kone, I love you, and please talk for 30 minutes while I listen. <laughs> um, so I'm very tempted just to do that. Um, but I, I've mentioned this before, I cannot... Um, say enough, just the impact that you've had mm. on my life mm. um, as a songwriter and as a worship leader, um, specifically within the area of understanding the fear of mm. the Lord. Mm. I think it's been very, I mean, it was the theme of what you spoke about last night, mm. uh, and it's been a theme of, of kind of every convergence. Uh, I feel like every convergence where you speak at the end of convergence, I'm undone, and I'm mm. kind of asking, what am I doing with my life, and reevaluating everything, and just coming, realigning everything. Um, and so I just thank you for the massive impact that you've had on my life. I feel very much the same, James, and, and thank you for your ministry. Um, actually, I went earlier and bought oh, was two of the CDs, yes, that I'm going to go give away. Um, it's something extraordinary that God is doing in your midst. Yeah. It's a great privilege to be a witness of it. Mm, I, mean, I mean, thank you for what you've contributed to making mm. that happen. Mm. Uh, and so for those who don't know, uh, Dr. Kone Becker, he is the Dean of the School of Divinity at Regent University in the States. He's a mm. professor there. Um, but every time you speak, I'm just, uh, I leave with a greater desire to, mm. to know God's word mm. and a greater desire to truly know Jesus. Um, and that's actually something I, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you, you mentioned somewhere in, in some of your sermons that you get to work with theologians. Right. Um, and that's something that I find often is, uh, why, why is it that it seems that so often loving God with our minds, you know, pursuing right. him with our minds, um, seems to be at, at odds with loving him with our hearts? You know, and this is obviously a space where you engage it's with academics right. and theologians. And how, how do you how do you love God with your mind and with your intellect, but right. without losing that passion and that love and that humility and that hunger for Jesus? James, an extraordinarily good and important question right now and quite timely. Um, I think we have to start with context, and very often. There is this kind of bifurcation that happens between worship and study, mm. where many people will think that I'm either a worshiper or I am a scholar. Mm. You have to choose between the two. Mm. And I'm of the firm opinion that the scripture and Christ himself invites us to worship and to serve God with all of our hearts, but also with all of our minds. Mm. So there's been two sides where I think great mistakes have been made. Um, I don't want to say much about the church kind of uh, or side of the mistake. I think what often has happened is that the church has looked upon academics and has looked upon serious study 
uh, with a fair bit of skepticism yeah. and and maybe rightfully so. I think on the other side, when it comes to the academy, I, I can say quite a fair bit. And the largest mistake that we've made is to separate theology from worship. Mm. And so often when I start to speak to either my students or the faculty that I lead, I always start off in saying that theology can only be done in the context of a worshiping community. Mm. And so when I use the word theology or theologian, I use it a little bit differently. So it's, it's funny, sometimes I speak at places and um, I spoke at a Bible college the other day and they gave me the brochure and the brochure started by saying, we don't teach theology. We teach the love of Jesus or something to that effect. Yeah. And of course, I had to say something about it. And, <laughs> uh, and of course, I had to do this publicly and reminded them that theology literally means the love of the study of God. Mm. And mm. so I asked them the question, what is it that you're not interested when it comes to that? Um, theology belongs ultimately to the church, not the academy. And so I'll often say to my students and faculty, I, I will say God's first plan is not the academy. It's not the school. It's not the university. It's not the seminary. His first plan is the church and his last plan is the church. Mm. And seminaries or Bible colleges or places of study only make sense as they serve the church. Mm. Um, <laughs> got myself into a huge amount of trouble at a conference a number of years ago <clears throat> when I made the statement, which I believe to be true. To do theology outside of the context of a worshiping community is sin. Sure. It is similar than having sexual conduct outside of marriage. Mm. Because ultimately, theology is about intimacy. Mm. Theology is about knowing who God is and loving him and trying to make sense of his truths for our world. Mm. And we have worked very hard at Regent over the last three or four years to move our seminary back to the church. Um, I've made a number of um, really important decisions that made me wildly unpopular. Um, I decided that anybody that teaches for us had to be a thriving member of a worshiping community. Sure. And so if they were not, I invited them to leave. Hmm. And so we had about 40 people that had to leave wow. at that point in time because I needed a reference from their pastor. I sure. wouldn't take their word for it. <laughs> but I think it's important. Um, if we don't study, we don't know who we are worshiping. Yeah. And if we don't worship, there's no purpose to our study. So worship and study really go hand in hand together. Mm. Now, there are always the dangers of pride and arrogance. Um, but that often means that people have not really studied. True study leads you to a place where you say, I know nothing. <laughs> and I'm often there. Um, it's I'm there every conversion. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting at the moment. I have two jobs at Regent. So I serve as the dean, but I also lead our PhD program. And um, it's, it's fascinating. So when my new doctoral students come, <clears throat> I always give them a full lecture, about 45 minutes. And it's, it's hilarious because most of them come not as students. They come as instructors. And I start, uh, start off always with a statement from the 17th century discussed Carmelite John of the Cross, which you need to look into. Uh, John was an extraordinary worshiper, wrote some of the most beautiful, yeah. intimate poetry about the Lord that should be put to music. Mm. 
Uh, by the way, my friend John Michael Talbot did a CD recently, um, about seven or eight years back, where he took the poems and put it to music. Wow. Uh, but it's a little medieval, so <laughs> it might not be everybody's um, <laughs> cup of tea. But John, John, John of the Cross used to say, he said, the first sin of beginners is the desire to teach rather to learn. And every time I read that, I think, mm -hmm, that's the problem. That's where we are. So uh, I, I am utterly convinced that true theology, true theological study brings us to our knees. Uh, and it brings us to a place of worship. And last thing that I'll say on this, um, so when people use the word theologians or theology, again, I think it should be recast. Anybody that thinks about God, anybody that wrestles yeah. with scripture is a theologian. Yeah. You don't need the credentials, academic credentials in order to do that. Mm. Amen. Thank you. Um, so today we are speaking to a lot of people involved in worship or in mm -hmm. songwriting and in some form of worship team. Um, am I right that did you used to be part of a worship team? Mm -hmm. Did you used to lead worship? I, I led worship for a very small period of time. It's okay. not really my gift. Okay. <laughs> I'm one of those people that have a love for music, but not really a great voice. Okay. <laughs> I grew up in, in a, with a music background. Okay. Uh, so I went um, to a music school as a high school, and, and that was actually the plan. Uh, the plan was to, to be involved in music. Yeah. And, uh, the problem, however, for a strong introvert like me, um, <clears throat> I could not express myself without an instrument, right? I had to be behind either keyboard or yeah. something else. And, um, and so at the age of about 17, I had this experience where the Lord asked me to give it up so that I could speak to people. Okay. Uh, you know, introverts can connect with people in extraordinary ways, but yeah. I cannot be connected with two things, mm. you know. And uh, music was such a passion, it still remains an extraordinary passion. Um, Do you ever have the desire to go and grab the mic from the person leading? So I'm gonna be very transparent here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I serve in the, this marvelous, wonderful, uh, trans-ethnic community, Christian community in, in Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads area in Virginia. And my pastor recently wrote me a note and said, <clears throat> this was April, and he said, you've written too many notes on worship to me for, for this year. So for the rest of the year, I don't want to hear any more, anything about our <laughs> worship. About worship. <laughs> By January, you can send another note. <laughs> so sometimes key changes can get me upset. <laughs> and, <laughs> I think that I think that makes sense to people, or or when folks sing the music of other people and they change uh, either the chord structure or the rhythm. Yeah, and uh, because obviously music communicates more than just words. Yeah, you know, there's there's theological content in the music itself. Absolutely. And um, so I, I tend to get a little upset. And <laughs> and and another problem, of course, is. Uh, that my musical tastes are um, slightly, slightly off, slightly different. Are they medieval uh, as well? <laughs> well, I, I think everything went wrong after the 14th century. And so <laughs> that's kind of where I am. So, <laughs> so basically every worship team is in trouble. <laughs> no, no. There's, there's something extraordinary that's happening in music oh. at the moment. There's, mm. there's actually a return to ancient ways. Sure. 
and a lot of the contemporary songwriting that's happening, and I don't know if it's by design or by the spirit, is actually returning to musical structures um, mm. that are much older. What do you than, mean by that, by the musical structures? So it would be it would be the core changes that are uh-huh. used, and sometimes the structure of songs yeah. are changing. You know, I I grew up as a Christian in the eighties where we just sang choruses. Mm. Who knows where that came from, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're lovely and everything, but you can sing a chorus only so many times, and <laughs> and to see, and then of course our music transformed and grew into kind of a pop structure, you know. Yeah. Um, Uh, two verses, chorus, mm. another verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus, end. <laughs> and um, and to see that there's more complex structures that are being presented at the moment. Yeah. And Tiffany's singing is coming back. Mm. Um, it's very encouraging to me. Mm. Uh, we have a service uh, that I'm involved in in Virginia Beach that we call our classic service that tries to introduce some ancient church liturgy and structures back. Sure. into worship and can you give uh, some examples of, of what well it, it would be firstly just the structure of singing um the structure of the liturgy making yeah. the table of the lord the focus point of wow. our worship yeah. um the proclamation of the word um encouraging people to recite scripture Uh, we started to include that in some of our main services as well. So we we start off with a scripture proclamation mm. that um, our congregation gets an opportunity to respond mm. um, with that, which is something the early church did. Yeah. Uh, so I am encouraged. I, yeah. I think there are some wonderful, very exciting things happening in worship at the moment. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know if it's part of the hipster culture, you know, um, <clears throat> I live in this area that is kind of hipster heaven. Uh, you know, coffee shops everywhere and everybody in flannel shirts and, <laughs> and beers and, and everybody looks as if they could cut wood, but of course they've never touched a piece of wood. And of course you say this wearing a flannel shirt and with a beard. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah, We're yeah. just missing a coffee. <laughs> yes, it's been eight weeks since I've drank coffee. I've not killed anyone oh, yet. Wow. <clears throat> it's been one of the most difficult things, transitions of my whole life. Uh, uh, but it's a good one. And I will say to you that um, we we are just seeing some some really extraordinary things happening. And I think mm. part of what's happening in the 80s and 90s, we were so married to a style mm. that um, people are discovering. Um, I have an 18-year-old son that's pursuing ministry at the moment and um, just, just started university right now in biblical studies. And for him to discover the 11th century Hildegard of Bingen's music, which I listen to all the time, and, mm. and he used to tease me about it, and him becoming passionate about that, discovering mm. um, the hymns that Martin Luther wrote, mm. um, the, the music of the Wesleyan brothers, mm. um, 17th and 18th century, And and even the beginnings of Christian music is, has been extraordinary for me to watch. And there seems to be a much larger openness amongst yes. the worshiping community, not to be married to one particular style, realizing, mm. you know, this is not the Christian top 20. Yeah. Uh, but what we're really interested in is all the fullness mm. of, of the creativity of God that can be expressed for all of it. And I think authenticity as well. I think people are hungry for an authentic expression. <laughs> Yes. Um, I, so, although I'm, I, I will say, I think there's still some ditches that are, yes. that are in front of us. Yeah. Um, 
um, at least in the area that we are, people cannot worship unless they've got twinkly lights somewhere, <laughs> you know, <laughs> across from you, or the auditorium has changed in the round where, yeah. you know, <clears throat> uh, the worship team is there and everybody's in a circle around them. <laughs> and it's lovely. And, and uh, we have to be careful that we don't fall into those same ditches that yeah. we have before. But I do believe, James, I think you are right. There's a deeper sense for something that's authentic. Um, uh, as you know, in the moment uh, around the world, the music industry is collapsing mm. in front of our eyes. Uh, people can simply not sell CDs anymore. Mm. That's over. Yeah. And we're still holding on to it a little bit. Um, <laughs> I had a good conversation. I don't know if you know the singer-songwriter Michael Card, mm. uh, just a while back. Uh, we're hoping that Mike will come and teach for us. Wow. Uh, and uh, Michael's just an extraordinary man. He just recorded his last CD. And uh, initially I was really upset and that's what prompted the conversation. Um, and he said, this is his last, last, last CD. And in actually in the podcast, I hear him explain it. And he simply said, the structure of the CD is going away. Mm. Yeah. He said, musicians can no longer make music um, by selling CDs. Mm. And I think it's a marvelous thing. And the reason for that is in, in the secular world, the only thing that's left is performance. Mm. It's the real. And I think there's a similar, marvelous, wonderful thing happening in worship mm. at the moment. The only thing that is really left for us is the live aspect of worship where people truly come yeah. to worship the Lord. Yeah. And I've noticed increasingly in audiences around the world and worshiping communities that there is a desire to move away from the concert experience. Mm. There's a desire to truly engage in worship and for people to be absolutely transparent. Mm. Even the idea, you know, I grew up in the 80s where everything was called praise and worship. <laughs> and of course, praise had to be fast and worship had to be slow. <laughs> Three of each. It's the definition. We teach that in our school of worship. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and people have people have let that go. There's yeah. there's an openness and um for something much more creative mm. and much more authentic. And and that for me is, is a marvelous movement in the right direction. Yeah. Um, you actually ran into that question. Uh, I was wanting to ask it. Um, so you've been part of the charismatic church and you mm. also, I mean, you get to, to travel to lots of different denominations. Mm. Um, and I wanted to ask you what, what do you see that we can celebrate, which you, which you answered now. Um, but I also wanted to ask what, what would you caution us? Um, because I, I believe the kind of charismatic worship movement is hugely influential. Right. Um, and I mean, you, you can go anywhere in the world and people will be singing Hillsong or Bethel or right. whoever, Jesus Culture. Um, and so what would you caution us in terms th of blind spots? I, I think there are three things that we have to be careful for. Um, the first thing I think to be careful for, and, and I'll use a psychological term. There's a psychological term in psychology called monomania. Mm -hmm. And monomania is to be obsessed with one thing. So, for instance, um, uh, anorexia is a mono, monomania disease you, where people are obsessed with just one aspect of their lives. And I think when we marry ourselves to one style and one expression, uh, it is, it's an issue of monomania. Um, I would caution greatly um, against having one particular style or emphasis uh, when it comes to worship. Uh, and the reason for that is that 
the world tends to always move a little bit quicker than the church. I'm sure you've noticed that. <laughs> and we sometimes laugh. I preached in a church a while back, which will go unnamed in the city. And it was like stepping back into the 1980s. And uh, the music was the same. The dress were the same. People were the same. <laughs> and it just felt very, very dated. Mm. And um, as a church, we need to always remember that worship is something that we experience in time, but also outside of time. It's an actual fact. Part of that experience that we can step into the eternity of God. Yeah. And in our worship, we need to consistently express to people that we are not on a race to be hip. Mm. We're not on a race to be fashionable. We are, mm. we are in essence communicating eternal truths that, that exist outside of time as well as within time. Mm. And one way that you can do this is by breaking up your expressions and using multiple styles and multiple forms mm. of expression and, and allowing lots of different areas of creativity. But I feel the generation that we are serving today is much more open to this than what they were in the 80s or 90s or early 2000s. Um, there is a greater sense, a, a deeper interest in, in, in different aspects. The second thing that I would caution greatly against, and, and to use again a psychological term, is neophilia, which is neophilia is to love the new. And um, we sometimes are in such a rush to jump on the new song, <laughs> yeah. the song that is, that's on Christian radio at the moment, and, um, or the approach that is happening. Um, I think we need to get to the place where we can celebrate local expressions. Yeah. For all the connectivity that we have around the world, there's a deep desire, deep desire. Um, I spoke to a pastor just the other day in, uh, in a city close to where I live, in a city called Chesapeake, and um, it was so unusual. And he said to me, you know, I've traveled the world for 20 years. And he said, oh, I have a desire now is to be in my community. Huh. And he says, I don't want to leave my community. And he wants to eat local and pray local and worship local. <laughs> and um, I, I think there's great, great um, wisdom and value in that. Yeah. The third thing that I, this is not a caution, but maybe an encouragement. We live in a time, I believe right now, where there is a merging of the ancient and the contemporary. Mm. Um, the difficulty if you marry to a particular style of music and if you marry to a particular expression is that at some point you run out of steam. Mm. It's very difficult to keep it going. Mm. And um, when somebody's 18 year old, 18 years old or in their 20s, there's a natural energy and passion that flows through those folks. Mm. Well, all of that changes in your 30s and it changes in your 40s. And I've been told it changes in your 50s. <laughs> and um, I will discover that now as we move forward. <laughs> I will tell you, however, um, the most encouraging thing that I'm seeing, and I'm seeing it really around the world, is that people are more interested right now in expressing godly, spiritual traditions that have been with us for thousands of years. And um, I have a hobby, so I collect early church liturgies, <clears throat> and I have a few thousand of them. Wow. And I read through these, and I read the prayers, mm. and to see some of the practices being resurrected. Wow. 
um, in our midst is is absolutely extraordinary. And seeing young people mm-hmm. being interested in it um, is is absolutely fantastic awesome. and and very encouraging to yeah. me. I would also say, together with that, um, you know, twenty thirty years ago, one would not cross denominational lines. So a Baptist would not go to a Methodist church mm. and certainly would never go into a Pentecostal or charismatic community. <laughs> um, in the city where I live, I probably preach in about 60 or 70 churches and they can be all kinds of different churches. And um, there's one community, Southern Baptist community, that I've done a lot of work with. And uh, I took my wife with me the other day while I preached and and she said to me, this is so strange. Their worship is no different than our church. Mm. And we're this wildly charismatic community. Mm. And to see that the distinctions that used to separate us are disappearing. Mm. There is a unifying of the body of Christ that's yeah. happening. And I believe worship is where we connect. Amen. Worship is that place yeah. where it indeed is happening. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, I've mentioned earlier that you've had a massive impact on my, on my mm. songwriting. And I don't know if this is a quote that comes directly from you or you quoted somebody else, but um, I once heard you say that theologically anemic songs produce anemic Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that we, we really focus on teaching is how our, our songs shape our theology. Um, so I just wonder if you can maybe expand on that a little bit and, and specifically for, for songwriters who want to go deeper than right. the cliché how do we craft lyrics? How do we go deeper? Right. How do we get to that place of revelation ourselves as songwriters so that what we're putting on paper is is deeper? So singing has always been part of the Christian community. Music has always been part. Mm. It's in essence the very fabric of who we are. And I think the mistake that pastors have made <clears throat> is not to realize that your primary And when I say primary, I'm speaking about sequence here. Your primary theologian in the church is the worship leader. Yeah. Um, The worship leader gets a greater platform Mm. than the pastor in preaching Mm. because people remember what you taught them Mm. and they sing it during the week. Mm. In the early church, songs were the primary way of theological instruction. Oh. Songs were used used as what would be called mnemonic devices, ways to memorize music and theology. So as a biblical studies professor, it's always been interesting to me. Uh, biblical studies folks are always deeply interested in when things were written and where they were written and why they were written and who wrote them. Stuff, my, as my son would say, nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> But theology geeks, right. Um, It is fascinating to me that the oldest portion of the New Testament is a song. Mm. It's the Philippians hymn. Mm. Very first portion of the New Testament to be written down. It's the oldest, oldest um, document that we have in the New Testament. It's a song that speaks about Christ, and it actually um, has the deepest, richest Christological Mm. theology in the New Testament. Mm. It's also true of the Old Testament. Scholars believe, and I'm with them, that the oldest portion of the Old Testament is a song that is recorded in Exodus 15. Mm. 
Mm. And it's the Song of Moses. Mm. And if you think logically about it, this makes sense. So we know that Moses recorded the first five books, the majority mm. of it. And as they came out of Egypt, they came to the Red Sea and God miraculously uh, delivered them. A song came out of the community. Yeah. And that's the very first portion of scripture. And if you look at both of those, wow. Exodus 15 has what we would call an, an extraordinary theophany of God's greatness and glory and beauty. It, it has such deep theology in it, it's actually very difficult to teach. Mm. And, the, and the community, the people of Israel walked away um, with this deep sense. There's Exodus 15, 13, for instance, speaks about who God is. And it says, you lead the people that you've redeemed in your loving kindness towards holiness. I mean, there's just <laughs> tons of theology in there. The Hebrew word that is used at loving kindness is that is, is an untranslatable word called chesed, mm. which we translate as kindness, but it's much more, it's undeserved, eternal, sure. consistent kindness. Um, and so what I love about it is that scripture starts with songs that are deep and rich in theology. The mistake that we've made is that we often employ people that are good in music, yeah. but are not necessarily gifted in theological reflection. Mm. Uh, in our worship program, we offer a master's in worship and um, are in the process of putting together a doctorate in worship. And I made the radical decision to divorce it from music mm. and to help our worship leaders understand that the role they play is central. As a preacher, I know it's pretty rare for people to remember the next day what I've said. <laughs> And I'm deeply grateful if somebody ever remembers anything, you know, <laughs> beyond the jokes. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, But worship leaders, people that write worship music, it remains. It has the greatest capacity and possibility to promote heresy, to rob the church of true, deep theological construction of who God is, but it also has the greatest possibility to build up the church. Mm. And we have to rethink um, those that lead worship as primary theologians. Mm. They teach. Mm. Uh, I mentioned John of the Cross earlier. Um, I remember the first time John of the Cross was this extraordinary theologian in the 17th century. Um, he was a convert, in actual fact, a disciple of Teresa of Avila, which is another extraordinary person. And John wrote deep, 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 beautiful books on one's experience with God. One can call it, for lack of a better phrase, mystical theology. And, but I remember the first time that I read it, I thought, oh, this is too difficult to make sense of. Until I realized how John worked, John was also a worship leader. And so John wrote five books, and what he did, he summarized his theology in five songs. Wow. We don't have the melodies anymore, but I know the lyrics. Sure. And what he simply did, he said, once you've read the book, memorize the lyrics and you'll remember. Sure. 
And I've memorized all of John of Cross's poems and it helps me when I teach it. Um, just some beautiful, extraordinary truths that are communicated. Yeah. And this is something that I think pastors and ministry leaders must recover. Worship as our primary tool of theological instruction. Mm. Mm. Um, actually, you mentioned Philippians 2. I, I wrote a, a song on that Behold album that you bought um, called Christ Our King. I know. Yes. <laughs> That's the reason why we bought it. I've been listening to it on Apple Music. <laughs> but yes. it's, it was just such an... Uh, when I first heard that about um, that it was originally a hymn, it's just the sort of singing words, I mean, obviously a different melody, but trying to keep the, 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 the lyrics of the song as close as possible to the scripture, just to think that that was what they were singing in the early Actually, church. the structure of that song that you wrote is very, very close. There's a, there's a marvelous 17th, 7th, excuse me, 7th century Christmas carol that sounds eerily... <laughs> It's not similar, in, but but in structure, wow. it's it's clear that you've not heard it, and I've always thought I need to I need to introduce you to this. Please hymn. do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will do this. It's it's really beautiful, and actually, it's a text from Isaiah that the carol is based on, hmm. but the musical structures is very close. Sure. Um, it's it's not the same. You didn't plagiarize because <laughs> you didn't know. <laughs> but there's there's similarities and cadence, and um, it's a beautiful, beautiful Amazing. thing. I was, um, thank you, thank you for the album. We've been listening <laughs> to it for quite a while. Um, it plays in our house, and uh, together we've healed the God. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, an honor, and, and, and a few other folks. Uh, in actual fact, yes. Awesome. So I bought some copies to to take to friends tomorrow. Wonderful people who still have CD players. Yes, we don't have CD players anymore. <laughs> it's kind of gone. Dr. Becker, thank you so much. Thank you, James. What a privilege. Uh, thank you for your ministry. Um, I learned from you. Um, very difficult to minister after you all sing. Because <laughs> I'm undone. Not that the congregation is ready, but I have to learn to pull back a little bit. But thank you for the privilege. Uh, thank you. And yeah, thanks for joining us today on this episode. And look forward to the next time. Bless you. Thank you for joining the Spirit Truth Podcast. Check out chauffeurband.com for music and resources. You can also subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it on iTunes, and share it with your friends on social media.